Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Boris Johnson has faced the most troubling scandal of his prime ministerial career to date over questions about who exactly paid for the refurbishment of his Downing Street residence. He has half an hour every week uh, to put serious and sensible questions to me and he goes on and on, Mr Speaker, about wallpaper when, as I've told him umpteen times now, I paid for it. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be analysing what's been called the Cash for Curtain scandal involving Boris Johnson's flat. We'll be examining the trio of different investigations facing the Prime Minister over who paid for the refurb and what impact this might have on next week's elections. Political editor George Parker and political columnist Robert Shrimsley will guide us through. And later, I'll be looking at the departure of Arlene Foster as leader of Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party, who her likely successor as First Minister will be, and what it tells us about the State of the Union. Our Ireland correspondent Laura Noonan will discuss with special guest Sam McBride from the Belfast newsletter. But first, George and Robert, great to have you back as always. Pleasure, I said. So everything this week has been about plush interior designing work and all the works that have gone on within number 11 Downing Street. And we've heard a lot about the upmarket designer that has inspired Mr. Johnson, his fiance Carrie Simons, to redecorate number 11 Downing Street. When you saw and heard this, George, what did it make you think about your home and whether it needs a bit of a revamp? Well, it made me think I'd better not invite Carrie Simons and Boris Johnson around to my house. I'll tell you something, I'm broadcasting live from my front room here and I'm afraid to say there's damning evidence of a copious supply of Ikea and John Lewis furniture. So uh, I think, to be honest, out of all of this, the thing that some Tory MPs tell me they're most worried about cutting through with the voters is the idea that Boris Johnson and Carrie Simons in some way look down their nose at John Lewis furniture, the bedrock of Middle Britain. I have to agree with that, George. I've recently moved into a new house and have made that upgrade from Ikea to John Lewis furniture and John Lewis themselves have been trolling Downing Street with various tweets about how their furniture recycling schemes are available and their interior design services. And it's quite funny in the politics of it. If you think back to that 2017 era with Theresa May and Andy Street elected as mayor of the West Midlands, aspiring to be John Lewis furniture owners is exactly where the Conservative Party should be. Robert, where do you fit in this with your interior designing skills? Now I'm afraid that the Tatler magazine and Carrie Simons would spit on me. I'm not only living this sort of the John Lewis furniture nightmare, I've got these, <laughs> the sofa workshop massacre and a sort of pine shop in Chiswick horror. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm completely non-new as far as these things go. I mean, I think it is one of those things that will stick with people, especially since they're not only looking down on that kind of furniture, but actually installing stuff they can't even afford. And I did notice on Twitter a wonderful meme going around of a picture of Carrie Simons' head superimposed over a painting of Marie Antoinette and the hashtag Carrie Antoinette. This is the kind of stuff that it's not going to drive them out of power today, but it sticks. I do tend to agree with that, but let's dive into the actual details of what this is all about. 
So Boris Johnson has some new curtains and allegedly some new gold wallpaper. Some rather expensive furnishings, in fact, that have caused the Prime Minister some funding challenges. Instead of paying for it all out of his own pocket, he has allegedly taken a loan from a Conservative donor to cover £58,000 of the cost, with the first £30,000 covered by the taxpayer. And crucially, this loan was allegedly not declared. The refurbishment of the number 11 flat has prompted three serious inquiries into the affair, including one from the Electoral Commission that could bring serious sanctions on the Conservative Party. Yet senior Tories don't seem too bothered by this row. Speaking at a Downing Street press conference this week, Health Secretary Matt Hancock dismissed difficult questions. I know that the Prime Minister answered lots of questions about this in the House of Commons earlier. And given that this is a coronavirus press conference, you won't be surprised that I'm not going to add to the answers the Prime Minister's already given to very extensive questioning. Thanks. Next question is... So, George, let's begin with the basic facts of this scandal. When Prime Ministers move into Downing Street, they have the option of living above number 10 or number 11. And in recent years, most Prime Ministers have gone to number 11, which is a much bigger flat. I think it was Tony Blair who started this, with Gordon Brown living above the shop in number 10. They get £30,000 from the taxpayer to redo this flat in whatever style they want. But it seems for Boris Johnson, he wants to spend a little bit more than that. And that's created a rather big headache. You're right that there's £30,000 a year, which I think to lots of people would sound like rather a lot of money. I mean, you are condemned as a prime minister or a chancellor of the exchequer to live with the bad taste of your predecessor in terms of the interior decor of the flat. And I remember going up to the flat above number 10 once when Alistair Darling was living there, the Labour Chancellor at the time. And they still had Margaret Thatcher's bathroom and John Major's walk-in wardrobe. So you can see why people want to do this up. But as Robert has made the point earlier on, Boris Johnson didn't have the money to pay for this very expensive work, inspired by the eco-designer Lulu Little. We know that the work was overseen by Carrie Simons, his partner. When the bill came in, it appears to have been a lot more than Boris Johnson imagined. He panicked. And discussions were held with Conservative Party's HQ about how this might be addressed. And what we know from an email leaked to the Daily Mail is that someone called Lord Brownlow, a former vice chairman of the Conservative Party, someone who has spent a lot of time giving money to successive Tory prime ministers, offered to put up £58,000 to help foot the bill. Now, he thought that this money would be diverted to Boris Johnson via a new Downing Street charitable trust. The problem was that this trust was never established Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, confirmed at a select committee last week that the Charitable Trust couldn't restore the private accommodation as opposed to the public parts of Downing Street. Therefore, it wasn't eligible. And suddenly you had this problem that there's £58,000 apparently and allegedly sitting on the books of the Conservative Party, which was then passed on either as a loan or a gift to Boris Johnson, which appears not to have been declared either by the Conservative Party or indeed so far at least, by Boris Johnson on either of the two registers where you have to register this kind of thing. That's either the register of MPs' interests or the separate register of ministerial interests. So, Robert, most of what we know about this whole scandal is due to the Daily Mail, which has been reporting on this throughout the past couple of weeks with a lot of leaks, which I think are widely thought to have involved the hand of Dominic Cummings, who's Mr Johnson's former disgruntled aide there. And he did this incendiary blog post last Friday when he described this whole idea of having donors paying for the refurbishment work as unethical, foolish and possibly illegal. Do you think Cummings was right? Well, 
I think the fundamental fact is that if someone gives money to the prime minister and we don't know about it and we don't know who they are and great attempts are made to hide it, that's problematic. The Dominic Cummings blog, because we have to put this in a broader context, there's been a drip, drip, drip of damaging leaks against the government while he was there and since he left. And a lot of these leaks, they blame upon him. The prime minister went over the top about this last week and briefed an attack on him to certain supportive newspapers. And that was the cause of Dominic Cummings' blog post. As a result of this, he sort of fired several rounds off at the prime minister and we're all eagerly awaiting his appearance for the Health Select Committee in May. Now, his actual blog post, while very high on invective, didn't tell us, I think, very much that we didn't already know. It revealed some very hyperbolic language that Boris Johnson had apparently used when discussing lockdown, saying, you know, he wasn't going to have another lockdown even if the bodies piled up in their thousands. But it didn't actually reveal anything about the prime minister that we didn't previously know. So it is just a full-on briefing war. But I mean, yes, it's clearly unethical to take money from someone and not declare it. That means it's foolish. Whether it's illegal, well, that's what all the inquiries are going to determine. Now, clearly, George, there is animus between Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson. We remember that period in November when the Vote Leave crew fell out with Boris Johnson and those around Carrie Simmons, his fiance. I remember when he left, you wrote in your story, he was walking out with a cardboard box full of secrets. And this is exactly what's coming to the open. And the reason it's coming to the open was that last Thursday, Mr. Johnson, or senior people in Downing Street, we should say, decided to brief against Dominic Cummings after a series of confidential text messages with Mohammed bin Salman, James Dyson, came into the public domain. And clearly, the Prime Minister was pissed off enough to do something about this. And this has started this whole war of words between the two sides. And the Tory MPs and ministers I've spoken to this week just think, why did Boris Johnson do this? They always knew Mr Cummings would be a very dangerous enemy to have. And it's now created a great big distraction for the party. I think Boris Johnson felt he was suffering a sort of death by a thousand cuts by these leaks, which he was certain were coming from Dominic Cummings. And you say it was briefed by senior people in Downing Street. And Downing Street has not denied that the briefing of the three supportive newspapers was done by Boris Johnson himself. And that is an extraordinary thing for a prime minister to be doing, to be running his own private media operation against the advice of, I'm told, senior advisors in Downing Street. So it's not just Tory MPs and ministers who are amazed and dismayed that Boris Johnson unleashed this briefing war with Dominic Cummings, or at least fueled it, but also the people inside Downing Street who are supposed to protect him from himself and give him advice on this. And the reaction of Dominic Cummings was entirely predictable, this sort of furious response. And frankly, it gives Dominic Cummings a bit of moral cover for the kind of activity which he's engaged in, which is essentially putting into the public domain information he acquired whilst working as a servant of the Crown inside Downing Street. I do think this goes to a broader point when I was looking at this week, which is that actually there are very few breaks upon Boris Johnson in Downing Street at the moment. The fact that people were telling him not to do this and he went and did it anyway is indicative of a broader problem. I mean, Boris Johnson was never the cipher that Dominic Cummings sometimes liked to portray him as. He's always trusted his own instinct. Successful prime ministers have around them a team of very close allies and advisors couple of officials, some very senior politicians who are all in the same project together. You know, if you think about Blair and Brown and Mandelson, Alistair Campbell and Jonathan Powell and David Cameron had George Osborne and William Hague and Ed Llewellyn, you don't have to agree with their policies, but they had a coterie around them who they trusted, who they listened to, whose advice they would take. And the fact is, 
Boris Johnson doesn't really have anybody like that. He has advisors, but they're professionals rather than shapers of his position. And I think this is one of the underlying fault lines now in his Downing Street operation. And we've sensed this for some time, George, the fact that Boris Johnson was put into the leadership of the Tory party in the summer of 2019, not because of out of any great love amongst the grassroots membership or amongst MPs, but because they thought they could get the party out of the Brexit mess and they could win. And those two things were proven to be true. But you know, I spoke to one longtime observer of the Tory party who described his leadership as a bit like a souffle, that it was very delicate and rose quickly, but could also collapse quite quickly. But we should put this in the wider context of how this is looking for the local elections, because the fact is the Tories are still 11 points ahead. A new YouGov poll showed that I've been out and about in the northeast of England, scouting around for the Tees Valley mayoralty and the Hartlepool by-elections. And this is very much a Westminster issue here. You know, how much does sleaze matter, do you think, as the Labour Party is calling it? You've spoken to ministers and MPs about this. And the view is they don't like the fact that the papers have been full of all this stuff over the last two weeks. But as long as Boris Johnson looks like a winner, they're going to keep their heads down and stick with him. And the fact of the matter is the opinion polls, at least, suggest that Boris Johnson may be right when he says that he won't give a monkeys about some of this stuff. I've just written a big read about all of this. And you, know, you look at the opinion polling at the moment, typically giving the Tories a 10-point lead over Labour. The YouGov poll in the Times showing a huge lead for the Tories among working class voters. And this is an extraordinary state of affairs when you step back and put this in context. It's a government which has been in office since 2010, over a decade, which has resided over a very difficult time in the country's history. Boris Johnson obviously made some pretty serious mistakes in the first part of the COVID crisis. And yet, despite everything, and despite all the things we've just been talking about over the last 10 minutes, he remains a winner. And you're right that his premiership could rise and fall like a souffle. But you, know, you have to bear in mind, he is a perennial winner. He won two terms as mayor of London in a Labour voting city. And for now, at least, he continues to defy political gravity. Now, Robert, these various investigations, how serious are they? So we have the Electoral Commission looking into the Conservative Party and whether this donation was properly declared or not. We also have a new independent advisor on ministerial interest that the old person who did this was a fellow called Alex Allen. He quit after the Prime Minister overruled him on those allegations of bullying regarding the Home Secretary Priti Patel, and they found a new person to do that. Those are going to drag on for quite some time, which could actually keep this in the headlines, even though Mr Johnson has said several times he paid for the loan and that there isn't a problem here. Yeah, I mean, they will drag on for a while. I mean, my own instinct on all these investigations is that in the end, there is only one thing that's going to fundamentally matter, which is if they find illegality. Anything else, Boris Johnson can effectively blag his way out of, you know, do a bit of an apology, a duck shuffle and move on. I think that he will be okay. If they find illegality, if people start having to resign, or you even get the police involved, then it becomes a major issue. But it all just corrodes the appetite that people have for his government. And more important, it corrodes the support he has among Conservative MPs. And this key point that George made about him being a winner, which is why he's there, he doesn't have a deep well of support within the Conservative Parliamentary Party. And that means that if things start to get ugly, if they start to stick, it can collapse on him very quickly, even if there isn't actually a sort of smoking gun in all these investigations to pull him down. So I think the point is, he's got to keep being a winner and he's got to keep running fast to outrun these. And I just think very quickly, Seb, what this episode tells us, A, it tells us about the fissures in the Downing Street operation, which could become wider over time and about which Robert wrote so well this week. And the second point is, I think the Labour Party 
it's not going to do well in this round of local elections on May the 6th, particularly in their heartlands. And it's going to be a tough night for Keir Starmer. But I think what he hopes is that by trying to get this sleaze argument up and running, he's trying to sow seeds of doubt in people's minds about whether the Conservative Party really means it when it comes to levelling up and trying to spread economic opportunity across the country. Are they really still in it for themselves? Are they really in it for their rich mates? Are they really more interested in feathering their own nests in the case of the Downing Street refurbishment? So I think this may be the lasting lesson of this, that maybe people might just have seeds of doubt planted in their mind by this episode, and that when the promise levelling up potentially doesn't materialise, they'll think there are darker motives behind that and reasons why that hasn't happened. Indeed. And this is the question. It's about the Conservative Party brand here. It's about what people's perceptions are of the party and how are they now the new voice of the working class of England? Or to use the phrase Labour loves to use, is it just the same old Tory party? Now, Robert, let's have a quick look forward to those elections on May the 6th, which is a bumper period because obviously we've got two years of elections rolled into one. We've got the London mayoralty, which I think everybody assumes Sadiq Khan is going to win on a very big margin, possibly on the first round of votes. But there's really four key races I'm going to be watching. One is the Tees Valley mayoralty, which the Tories won in 2017, was the first brick that they chipped out of the red board. Just how strong does Ben Houghton win there? I don't think Labour have got much chance. Then you've got the West Midlands mayoralty, where Andy Street, who again was elected in 2017, is in a very tight re-election race with Labour. Then we've got the Hartlepool by-election, which, as George mentioned earlier, is not a natural place for the Conservatives, but all we're hearing is they're quite tight. And then, of course, we have Scotland too. And the question of, do the SNP win a majority? And does that give them a commanding mandate to push for independence on those races? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I broadly agree with your analysis on all of them. I mean, I haven't been to Hartlepool, and you have. My hunch is it's a little tight, tighter than some people think, but the Tories certainly are gung-ho for it. I think when you look at the night, however, this is one area of buffeting for the Conservative Party that they're not looking forward to. So the big, big story of the night, we assume, will be what happens in Scotland and whether a second independent referendum majority is returned in Scotland, either because the SNP went out right or because their combined vote with, say, the Greens takes them over the top and all the polls suggest that's going to happen. And if that happens, we are straight into a big, big potential crisis around the future of the Union and around the future of Scotland. And the instinct of Downing Street is to bluff it out and tough it out and refuse it. But that's a big, big deal. The other one which you didn't mention, which I think is worth mentioning, is Wales, where if you look at the polls so far, it is quite possible that Labour, having run it more or less by itself, it has had a just about coalition with the Liberal Democrats, but it could be forced into power with Plaid Cymru, because if it doesn't get a majority, Plaid Cymru could be the only people who could sustain it in power. And that obviously significantly impacts the politics of Wales in the union, because then you've got a group in government in Wales who also want to break away. So I think both those two are the two that we're really going to want to watch on the night. And finally, George, what are your predictions for those key races? Yeah, as Robert says, Scotland is going to be the big one to watch. Um, and all the evidence seems to be pointing towards a majority for independence in Scotland. I guess the other one that people really focus on is Hartlepool. You, know, you still speak to Tories who are actually rather doubtful they are going to win that. I think the race is going to be very tight there. And the fact that I think Keir Starmer has been there three times already suggests to me that Labour think there's very much a battle they can and should still win. So I think those are the two that I guess will dominate the headlines. But across the country, you know, I suppose the West Midlands is the other one I'd watch really, because we all know that the West Midlands is the swing region in any general election, always switching between red and blue. And 
whether the Labour Party is starting to make any sort of recovery in the West Midlands is another one I'll be watching on the night. George and Robert, thank you very much. Over in Northern Ireland, Arlene Foster announced her resignation as First Minister this week. The leader of the Democratic Unionist Party has been under pressure for some time over her stance on domestic issues and, crucially, Brexit. Pressure mounted on her until her departure was inevitable. In a resignation statement, Ms Foster reflected on her years leading the Northern Ireland Executive. Of course, as with highs, there were lows along the way. The three years without devolution caused untold harm to our public services. The protocol being foisted upon Northern Ireland against the will of unionists has served to destabilise Northern Ireland in more recent times. The future of unionism and Northern Ireland will not be found in division. It will only be found in sharing this place we are all privileged to call home. Well, Laura Noonan, welcome to the podcast. It's fantastic to have you on. Where did this come from and why is she being pushed out? So this came because there was a fairly significant heave against her and one which became impossible for her to ignore. So around about Tuesday lunchtime, there were reports of this letter which had been circulated by some of the most senior members of her party, circulated and signed by them, effectively expressing their lack of confidence in Foster's leadership and asking for a challenge to her leadership. Initially, Foster tried to play it down. She was out on Tuesday afternoon, said that this kind of talk happens all the time and it wasn't serious and that she had more important things to do. However, by Tuesday evening, it became apparent that in fact, most of the MPs and most of the MLAs in Stormont were now pushing against her and it became impossible for her to really survive that. So her options were either to leave or her options were to face a vote and to definitely lose it. So she chose to leave. In terms of why this is happening, I mean, there's been a number of different elements, but I think the most important one really has been Brexit and the DUP's handling of Brexit under her. It was always going to be very difficult to be a DUP first minister who was in power at the point when they put a border in the Irish Sea, effectively changing the relationship between the north of Ireland and Great Britain. And that was something which Arlene Foster somewhat flip-flopped on. Back in January, she spoke about how this could be an opportunity for Northern Ireland. She then changed tack pretty quickly and actually is part of a legal challenge fighting it. But the end result is that they haven't been successful so far in fighting it. And there is a border in the Irish Sea. And that is something which the unionists group finds very hard to live with. Well, Sam McBride, thank you very much for joining us on Payne's Politics. You've written for many years about Foster's leadership. Do you agree with Laura this was fundamentally about Brexit? What's her domestic situation been? It certainly, I think, fundamentally in policy terms was mostly about Brexit. That is absolutely correct. I think there were also, in terms of the catalyst for this last week, there were questions around social issues. Um, She was being seen as too liberal by some DUP traditionalists when it came to a motion on banning gay conversion therapy, which came before the Stormont Assembly last week. Mrs. Foster abstained on that. That really unsettled some of them, given the party's history, where they've basically opposed almost every gay rights move in Northern Ireland for the last 50 years. But really, I think more than any of these policy decisions, this was about a failure of her as a politician to do the basics of politics. This was about a sense that she was really lurchingly incoherent, that she was rambling, that as one DUP politician said to me at the start of this week, she was becoming erratic. They didn't know what she was going to do next. One week, she would set out a policy 
as recently as a few weeks ago, she said that the DUP would be moving to say that North-South ministerial business, part of the Good Friday Agreement, would not be continuing as usual while the Irish Sea border existed. While East-West relations were disrupted, she said, we're not just going to carry on as normal on an all-island basis. Then suddenly at the start of last week, she basically suggested that there had never been any suggestion of a boycott to North-South ministerial business. Her minister went back to a meeting the next day. DUP members who had been struggling to explain these policies in their golf clubs, in their churches, to their neighbours, they really just had had enough of this. And ultimately, it was just an accumulation of factors here where people lost complete confidence in her. It is extraordinary, Sam, when we think back to what happened with Brexit, because after the 2017 election, when Theresa May essentially lost her working majority in Parliament, the Conservatives were in a confidence and supply agreement with the DUP in Westminster, and they very much propped up Theresa May's government, and they had a big influence on her Brexit deal. And part of the reason that that deal never passed the House of Commons was because the DUP's MPs never supported it. But they certainly overplayed their hand in that. And the fact that we have this effective border down the Irish Sea is because the DUP were outmaneuvered by Boris Johnson. And as well as being humiliating, it's created these big questions about the future of Northern Ireland within the UK. Absolutely, Seb. That is the uncomfortable truth which DUP members are increasingly wakening up to. Some of them quite late, some of them not until the Irish Sea border actually went up and they realised quite what it meant constitutionally, what it will mean in the future as EU rules diverge from those of the UK and Northern Ireland has no say in those. But really, there is almost a Shakespearean tragedy aspect to what has happened here. This is somebody who wielded more power over the national government in Westminster. In fact, it was more than that. She wielded more power in European politics than anybody in the history of Northern Ireland. She did not do that from a position of humility. She did not do that with any sense that her position there was temporary, that she was on borrowed time, that she really had her power in Westminster through 1.5% of the 650 members of parliament, that it was a freak election result, which had led to a hung parliament, which meant that her 10 MPs suddenly counted. Rather than that, there was this preponderance to the swagger, which has always defined the DUP. They are not very good at making friends. They're good at twisting people's arms, at using the raw political power at their disposal. But the problem with that was that it was very short term. And now that they need friends in London, in Brussels, in Dublin, even in Belfast, they're looking around and they don't have very many. And that is one of the things that I think is most damaging about Arlene Foster's leadership. There is a sense of wreckage left behind her here. And if her successor is able to even get the party back to almost where it was at the point when she took over, I think in these circumstances that will be wildly successful, but actually very unlikely. Well, Laura, this brings to the question of where the DUP goes next, because as Sam said, a lot of their policy positions within the context of wider UK politics are very socially conservative, very hardline and uncompromising. And this raised the question of who is likely to replace Arlene Foster and on what kind of policy platform is it going to be more moderate or is in fact going to end up being even more hardline? So based on how things are unfolding so far, I would say it seems like it's going to be, if anything, more hardline. The front runner to replace her is a guy called Edwin Poots. He's currently the Agriculture Minister here in Belfast. He would certainly be more conservative on, I think, most topics than Foster would be. And I think it seems like there's also a demand from the party that whoever comes in should take tougher lines on various things. I mean, the obvious one is they want a tougher line on the Northern Ireland Protocol 
But there's also domestic things like they want a tougher line on the Irish Language Act, which Foster had agreed to support and which is basically going to give Irish language an official place. And they want a tougher line on that as well as on some of these social issues. And of course, there are still major issues, Laura, about that protocol causing trading disruptions and reports of shortages there. So you'd have to think if the DUP go for a more hardline candidate, they're not going to be looking for compromise on this because Arlene Foster has been running a social media campaign to get the protocol scrapped, which doesn't look like it's going to happen. But you could imagine someone like Mr. Poots would actually try and take that a step further. Well, the thing about it is there's not a whole lot that the DUP can actually do or that anybody in Northern Ireland can actually do on it from a technical perspective, because the Northern Ireland Protocol is something agreed by the UK and by the EU. And as things stand, the DUP or the Northern Ireland Executive, they don't have a seat at that table. So short of pulling out of the Assembly because of the Northern Ireland Protocol, there aren't a whole lot of levers for them to pull. I mean, everyone here can recall that we had three years without any assembly lasting from 2017 to 2020. And people don't really want to test that again. And Sam, what's your thought on that Brexit question, but also the wider demographic changes in Northern Ireland, which an awful lot has been written about with the Catholic population growing and causing potential issues for the DUP at the next Stormont elections due in 2022? Well, it's certainly a measure of how far the DUP and unionism in Northern Ireland has fallen in five years, very significantly as a consequence of Brexit, but not entirely because of that. This is now a serious conversation in Northern Ireland. Will Irish reunification happen? When will it happen? How will it happen? That was not being talked about seriously by very many people when Arlene Foster became leader. That is going to be one of the central strategic issues in the background for the next DUP leader. But the more pressing issue is going to be the Irish sea border. But one of the banana skins here for Edwin Putz, I think it is becoming increasingly clear that it will be Edwin Putz, certainly as first minister and probably as party leader. But if it is him, he has this very hardline image. He is seen as very traditional DUP, free Presbyterian, a creationist, a Christian fundamentalist, a Paisleyite, somebody who opposed lifting the ban and gay men giving blood in Northern Ireland, somebody who really in Northern Ireland and outside Northern Ireland is perceived as the hardliner's hardliner. Actually, behind the scenes, he has a slightly more pragmatic side. He's worked quite harmoniously with Sinn Féin. And on the protocol in particular, he is the person who is responsible for the checks at Northern Ireland's ports. He allowed his officials to build the border last year. They run the border under his authority. And to this day, he has not stopped them doing those checks. Now, are those the actions of somebody who is going to come in on day one and blow everything up? I'm not sure. I think that's going to be the interesting question here. And then finally, Laura, this again goes to where the future of Northern Ireland is within the UK here as well, that if we look at those Stormont elections, I know it's still quite a long way away here, but if the DUP do go down this route, depending on how hardline where they go, do you still see them being the key party in the Northern Ireland executive in the future? Or do you think the disruption over Brexit and potentially this leadership ruckus as well is going to ultimately damage their standing? I think it's fair to say at this point, it looks very likely to ultimately damage their standing. I mean, we are a year out from the election, which can be a long time in politics. But as things stand, it does look very likely that we would have a Sinn Féin-led assembly. However, in terms of what that means for Northern Ireland's place within the UK, as I think most of your listeners will know, Sinn Féin have been pushing very hard for the border poll. They very much think that Northern Ireland's place should be within a united Ireland. However, 
that call isn't theirs to make. That call actually gets made in London, not in Northern Ireland. And certainly here, it does still feel like we are quite far away from a border poll. And I think that will still be the case, even if we did have a Sinn Féin-led assembly. Well, Laura and Sam, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then yes, please do subscribe. You can find us through all your usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google, to receive episodes when they're released. If you're feeling generous this weekend, leave us a nice positive review too. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh de la Mer. The sound engineer was Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.